And that was exactly how the founders intended it, was that we wanted these local organizations to take responsibility for lots of stuff. There's lots of important things that the central government shouldn't be doing because it's not competent to do it. So these are insights that they had that we clearly have lost. And so, you know, that's part of the book is trying to uh, refresh people's memory and help them rediscover them and then talk about how we might apply those those ideas and concepts to, to our current situation. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence, and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to the show. In this episode, I chat with John Nance about his book, Rediscovering Republicanism, Renewing America with Our Founding Vision and Values. It's about republicanism as a political idea rather than about the Republican political party. John argues that the United States has forgotten or overlooked the insights of its founders. He argues that its founders, like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, they had insights on governance that are still relevant today. John tells us that the founders intended for the federal government to have limited power, with state and local governments, community groups and citizens themselves taking on more responsibility for problem solving. John is a Stanford-educated, McKinsey-trained strategy consultant. Based on his book, he started a highly popular TikTok series on American history that has earned over 4 million views. As always, if you have thoughts on this episode or other episodes, or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know if you think a return to traditional republicanism with a limited role for the federal government is desirable or feasible. Righto, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Nance on Rediscovering Republicanism. John Nance, welcome to the program. Dean, thank you. This is great. It's good to good to see you. Appreciate you having me on and appreciate you getting up a little early in Australia to do this. Oh, of course. Uh, it's uh, good to connect and you're joining us from Austin in Texas and you're uh, you're currently running a uh, a boutique advisory firm, Redwood Advisors. Could, before we get into it, could you tell us a bit about Redwood Advisors and what you do there, John? Yeah, sure. Happy to tell you a bit about it. So, so I started my professional career at uh, McKinsey and Company. Went to undergrad at Stanford. Did some time at McKinsey. It's a big consulting firm, and actually uh, left the firm to write the book we're talking about today. And uh, ended up getting a few clients when I was writing the book. And, uh, you know, cause when you're writing a book, you've got a little bit of free time and not a ton of money. <laughs> so ended up doing some work independently, really loved it and, um, had an offer to go back to McKinsey, but decided to strike out on my own and, uh, it's worked out. And so I have a small boutique firm here in Austin, Texas, focused on a lot of strategic planning work. Excellent. Strategic planning for corporates, for business. Is that the sort of thing you do? A lot of private sector, some social sector. So we've done projects with uh, you know companies uh, your listeners may be familiar with like Lyft and National Geographic and NASA Education, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Dalio Foundation. So it's a good mix of private sector and social sector. And uh, yeah, and it definitely, definitely keeps me busy and, uh, uh, and stimulated. So very good. Okay. I might, um, might come back to that a bit later. That, no, it's interesting. Uh, 
you mentioned Ray Dalio. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, huge name and and someone who uh, you know economists obviously keep an eye on for uh, uh, for all of his uh, you know his interesting analysis over the years. So that that's terrific. Okay, so as you mentioned, John, you uh, you wrote this book, Rediscovering Republicanism, Renewing America with Our Founding Vision and Values. To kick off with, what do you mean by republicanism? Is it, this is something different from the current Republican Party, is it, the values of that party, or what are you talking about here? Yeah, it's a great question. So, and obviously talking to someone from Australia, uh, if it's just the Republican Party of the United States, it's a little less interesting. So yeah, the the book the book uh, was really focused on republicanism, kind of as a and as a political idea, not not certainly not a political party. And if you look at republics, you know you go back to ancient Greece, you go back to ancient Rome. These are sort of the first examples of republics. Um, obviously, there's some differences in terms of how you define them. You know, some city states in Greece would qualify as direct democracies, where people actually get together and vote on laws themselves, but pretty quickly things turn into republics where people would basically vote on elected officials to go represent them and to make laws. And that's kind of the definition of a republic versus democracy is you elect this sort of middle layer of elected representatives to represent you, hence the word like republic. Um, so when I use that word rediscovering republicanism, you know, there was this, you know, kind of a, after the, you know, during the enlightenment era, you think Montesquieu, and some other lock, et cetera, there was this rediscovery of, of Republican theory um, going back to kind of ancient Rome and Cicero. Um, but at the time, you know, 1600s, 1700s, the world was largely ruled by kings. Um, it was a monarchical time. But people had this thought of, well, could we start republics? Could we start them? And uh, the United States was one of the first countries to do that. It was the first written constitution, actually. There was a, a slight uh, predecessor in Corsica, actually, I think technically can take credit for having the oldest written constitution. Um, but the United States is obviously the largest, you know, first written constitution of, of, of note, um, in 1787 when that got done. So United States kind of kicked off this Republican, uh, push, obviously Australia, New Zealand, most of the Anglophile, uh, Anglophone world, uh, has republics, India has a republic, so we live in a Republican age, and that's kind of the way that I'm using that term. And when I say rediscovering Republicanism, at least in the United States, you know, things have changed a lot uh, from when the country was started. And um, I think we have forgotten or overlooked a lot of the insights that the founders of, of this country had in mind when they put together our political regime. And so my book is when it says rediscovering what I'm kind of arguing is I think we need to to go back and take a look and understand a bit better um, why the country was set up the way it was set up. And uh, and I also further argue that we should we would benefit from reapplying those insights and recommendations to to today. Okay. Well, we'll get into that. I just want to um just mention something. This is a bit of trivia. So Australia, I'd say, yes, effectively we are a republic, although legally we're not. We had a referendum. 24 years ago to determine whether we should become a republic because we're still technically a constitutional monarchy, even though we've severed any real legal connection with the United Kingdom. There's no appeals to the Privy Council as there once was. And our laws don't have to get passed by an imperial parliament or anything like that. We're completely independent in that regard. But legally, we're still... You know, we still have a governor general who represents the 
the king. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's uh, anyway, wow. um, that's a domestic political issue you, yeah. you wouldn't be aware yeah. of. Or wouldn't, it, it, it's, just a, it's just a real oddity. Okay. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask about the, these founders. So you're talking about uh, Ben Franklin, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, yes. uh, Madison. Uh, yes. What are these insights? What, what are those insights that those founders had? And if I've left any, any important founder out, please let me know. Yeah, no, that's, uh, you hit a lot of the, the big names. So when they started, you know, at least in the United States, um, it was a very, very challenging and complex situation because the United States had basically declared uh, independence from England, United Kingdom, 1775, 70, 1776 period. There obviously was a war. We called the Revolutionary War. I'm not sure what the English call it, but I, I actually would love to know what they call it. But anyways, in the United States, we call it the Revolutionary War. And that wrapped up in 1783. And we had to think the governing political document was the Articles of Confederation. And uh, basically how that worked was each state in the United States, there was 13 at the time, was pretty much its own government. So the analogy would almost be, uh, we almost it was almost like a combination of uh, NATO and uh, the European Union trade bloc. So it's actually, yeah. honestly, a, a good analogy is modern day Europe, actually. Um, each of the states had their own, nine had their own navies, all of them had their own armies. So we had 13 different armies in the United States. So, uh, and I, people don't know this, but it's a fascinating period of history, fascinating period of American history. People just kind of, you know, gloss over it because it's complicated, but it's it's absolutely fascinating. So that's 1783. Well, it turned out that uh, that was a very uh, fraught situation because the different states, as states will do, start to compete with each other. They started taxing each other's trade. Um, they wouldn't let, trade, you know, merchants go through their ports to get other states. Um, there was not unified policy with foreign powers. So England wasn't, England had agreed to leave certain forts uh, on the borders of the United States, but the United States didn't, didn't really have an army to enforce those provisions. So the English were just like, well, we're not going to leave. Um, and you've got Spain is, is, is on the Mississippi River with New Orleans and is, is, is blocking uh, the, the export of, of, of farm goods. So this is a, and, and then you have actual local domestic rebellions called Shays Rebellion. So you have these farmers rising up and saying, we don't want to pay our taxes to the Massachusetts government, you know, and we have guns, you know, if you want to come to get the money, come and take it. Mm. So this is a very challenging situation. And so in 1787, a lot of the founders of the country, the people that you were just mentioning, were like, okay, this is not a stable equilibrium. Uh, this is going to devolve into European squabbling or we're going to be taken over by a foreign power. The English will come back. We have to, we have to rethink this. And so it's this very interesting situation where you have these, these men who had spent seven plus years of their lives revolting from the United Kingdom, uh, fighting a war against central authority because of how corrupt the, they, they viewed the English as at the time, um, getting together and saying, we actually need more central power to hold us together. Mm. And so that was the really rich situation that the, the founding fathers of the United States in Philadelphia in 1787 found themselves is we just fought a war. We lost tens of thousands of men against this, what we called a foreign despotic power that was could becoming corrupt. And now we're getting together to basically create a new one. That is a very, very tight 
uh, rope to navigate. Um, and so that's kind of what they were trying to do. So I think what that basically meant was uh, we needed to have a, a centralized power that could deal with foreign affairs, that could um, create a consistent set of laws in the country, um, uh, eliminate you know intrastate uh, taxes. So kind of getting rid of a lot of the things that clearly weren't working in that 1783-1787 period. Well, at the same time, not letting the government get out of bounds because what the founders believed was that what the example, what the English example showed is if you have no restraints on the government, it's just going to keep growing and growing and growing and growing. That's just the nature of government. So they were trying to thread that needle. Um, and so the, the three things that I talk about a lot in the book is the kind of bulwarks of this political order were the first was really um, very strong individual rights. So the government, you know, it's it's interesting if you uh, look at the language of the 18th century, and you guys may I'm not sure where you all are, are now in the in 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 Australia, but at least in the United States, the citizens were called the subjects of the king. Uh, which is if you if you actually s- slow down for a second, you think about that. That's that's actually a really interesting turn of phrase because mm. basically saying we are subject to the king. The king has the power, and we are subject to it. It's very clear the the power dynamic there. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to make each citizen in the United States, at least, is really the raison d'etre of our political polity. We're not a collective. We're not um, at the beck and call of a king or of an aristocracy. Each citizen really is their own little center of political power, right? And the government is here to serve them, not the other way around. The people are not the subjects of the king. The king, the government, is really the subjects of the people, uh, and that's why in the Constitution, the the first start, you know, the first phrase is "We the people." So we the people come together to create a government to serve us. So it's a huge inversion of the historical relationship. Um, so we basically had, and then of course you have the Bill of Rights in the United States, um, which were the first ten that came out on free speech and establishment of religion, basically saying. If the government forgets what it's supposed to do, it's not supposed to do these things, right? These are out of bounds. And then in the Constitution itself, there's this listing of the powers of the federal government, what the Congress can do, the president can do, et cetera. All of that was intended to support a regime where the government had pretty limited powers and the citizens had kind of this open-ended, right, open-ended ability to sort of do what they want. So that was political idea number one, is let's put the citizen as the primary political power in our country, not the government. The second was state governments. So like I was saying, uh, originally in the United States, we had these state governments, the 13 were really their own countries mm. in large. Like, so in the United States, those what, what happened is those 13, um, the concept is called federalism, but the federal government doesn't have, doesn't have all the power in the United States. Um, and I think this is common in the Anglophone world. Um, these these subsidiary government governments provinces is I don't I don't know what term is used in in the United Kingdom but that's another term I think in Canada they use the word province anyways these provincial governments or state governments actually have a lot of power so United States they have the police power they have the education power so you know there's local laws that they can enforce that the federal government actually can't election law for example is a state law is is a state prerogative in the United States so the states got their own power. 
which was separate from the federal government. And that was intended to sort of like make sure that the federal government didn't get too big. And then the third thing was the civil society. And this was a sort of a softer, more tacit thing, but was absolutely critical to how the founders looked at the world, which was we don't want government to be the problem solver for every social problem. Like that idea, which yeah. is endemic now, yeah. is would is totally foreign to them, right? You know, Benjamin Franklin, you know, started the first public library, quote, public. It was a private library, right? Formed by the citizens of Philadelphia, didn't need the government managing it. Same thing with fire departments, same thing with toll roads in the United States. All of this stuff was done sometimes locally with the citizens working amongst themselves, sometimes by the local or state governments. So that was the third one, was they assumed that, and that's where the indigent, like help for the poor, you know, we, we've had that in our country since the 1600s, but the federal government hasn't, didn't get involved until the 1960s in the United States. And that was exactly how the founders intended it, was that we wanted these local organizations to take responsibility for lots of stuff. There's lots of important things that the central government shouldn't be doing because it's not competent to do it. So these are insights that they had that we clearly have lost. Um, and so you know that's part of the book is trying to uh, refresh people's memory and help them rediscover them and then talk about how we might apply those those ideas and concepts to, to our current situation. Mm. So what I liked about your, your book, uh, you talk about the economic vision that they had. They had a vision of a particular type of economy and people within that economy. You talked about self-reliance, but it, uh, the, it's broader than that, isn't it? I mean, the concepts that you were uh, talking about in that book, you, could, you ex- could you explain what their economic vision, the economic vision of the founders was, please, John? Yeah, and I know that's, that's of interest to you and, and a lot of your listeners is this, is, this, is this economics perspective. So, you know, to give a sense of how important this was to them, um, a lot of people don't know this, but actually in the Constitution, there's a fair amount of language around intellectual property rights, which is kind of fascinating. You're like, wow. I mean, it's not a very long document, but they actually took the time to articulate rules around uh, or guidelines in terms of, okay, if you create something, how long can you patent it? Can you have rights to that, et cetera? That is a huge tell about how they expected things to play out and how they wanted them to play out. So the founders were sort of setting up this system that they their vision was they would have, you know, uh, independent, free, uh, you know, individuals making f- largely free choices, working together uh, to, at least in those times, many people were working on their farms. So obviously run their farms independently, but they had manufacturing firms, traders, all these people doing it. All these folks would be working independently to uh, build wealth, to create income for themselves and their families. They'd be working together collaboratively, sometimes in the economic realm, sometimes uh, in the social realm to sort of solve social problems, but they would be doing this sort of in these voluntary civic society. This is what Tocqueville, who visited the United States, he, this was the most remarkable thing he thought of, he found about the United States was all these civil associations that were solving various problems. Um, so the, yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but you know, obviously the constitution is a, a political document. It's kind of how things should be working politically, but embedded in that is this vision 
it's a political system that was intended to support and foster um, a very, a largely free market. I mean, we didn't have regulations in this country. Um, I think the first regulation, I could get this wrong, but it was there, there was like a little bit of a, a federal regulation in the 1820s regarding like smallpox, but you didn't even really see the first, the, the concept of a federal regulation, even the concept didn't really even exist until the 1850s and 1860s. The federal government around for 80 years. That tells you how not involved they expected the federal government to be. They didn't even think it was something, they didn't even have the idea of doing it. Mm. That they, they assumed all of this would be done um, either at the individual level or the state level. Yeah. How did the founding fathers reconcile this, the, the belief in, in limited government or in... Uh, or in freedom, in in rights, how do they reconcile with the slavery that existed in the southern states? It's a great question. It's a very fraught question. It's very interesting, and obviously, there's there's a lot of this is kind of a hot topic in in the United States. There was basically what here's how I would characterize, and of course, each person had their own perspective, right? So I'm I'm characterizing a group, but obviously, each person has their own view on it. But I'm broadly, this is I think correct. If you look at the people who were there at 1787 uh, in the room, the broad consensus was uh, this is not the future. This is not in line with our values. So there was a pretty clear, I mean, you couldn't have gone through the Revolutionary War with, you know, no taxation without representation, mm. right? And you think, well, how does that apply to slavery? And by the way, if you, you know, you can read books on this. Bernard Balin has some, the, the ideological origins of the American Revolution is a Pulitzer Prize winner and fantastic. It was not lost on these people that the ideology of the revolution did not support the philosophical underpinnings of slavery. That was not lost on intelligent people. So you have that. You also have the reality of slavery, which is that you have the majority of Southern wealth in slaves. You have, I think at that point, almost a million slaves. So, which is a good portion of the country actually a bigger portion of the country at that time than, than now, and a bigger portion of the country then than actually during the Civil War, because the Civil War, the North actually grew more. So you had this practical consideration, you had this, this ID, I, you know, idea. And so what they did is they tried to come up with some compromises. So, so one thing is the word slavery is not in the Constitution, which is a very important thing. They knew the word could have been, there were versions of the Constitution drafts that included it, and they took it out because they didn't want the word in the document. And I think that's a huge, important tell. Um, they had this compromise on the three-fifths compromise. You can argue that both ways, but I think, again, you kind of see them struggling with how do we uh, deal with this. Um, very importantly, and a lot of people don't know this, um, the Constitution actually included a provision allowing the uh, elimination of slave imports in the 1800s, early 1800s. I think 1805, 1806, I might be getting that wrong, but it was during Thomas Jefferson's presidency. So the Constitution actually predicted we are going to ban this import of slaves, which they actually did. So the second that date came around, uh, the United States embargoed the slave trade in the early 1800s. So we didn't actually import slaves. So you can kind of see where all this is going. Everyone is sort of like, and then here's the other interesting thing is at that time, a lot of people thought that slavery would just sort of go away, that it would sort of not be, uh, it wouldn't be economically efficient, right? Um, that actually slaves would be more of a burden than a boon. 
Um, and this is actually what they believed. And there was some good evidence for that at the time, that it actually wasn't that productive to pay for and feed slaves relative to what they could produce. The cotton gin and all that stuff, what really changed the dynamic is in the early 1800s, Eli Whitney came up with a cotton gin, which allowed the very efficient, this is an economic point, by the way, that a lot of political historians don't understand, but it's fundamental to what actually happened. Eli Whitney creates the cotton gin, I forget when, I think it's in the early 1800s, which massively increases the productivity of cotton production, meaning you can kind of go out and get all the stuff that's in these cotton bowls out using just running it through a machine as opposed to doing it by hand. So we're not talking about 20%, we're talking about multiples more efficient. At the same time, cotton demand is skyrocketing and no one wants to go outside. I don't know if you've been to Mississippi, but like you'd have to pay someone a lot of money to do that. That created a massive demand for slaves. And that's where you see the price of slaves in the United States starts to skyrocket as they can produce cotton, which then can be sold into the, into the global market. That is what made slavery last. And right. that's, I think, what led to the war. Because 10% of African-Americans, or I should say Blacks, in the South were free by the beginning of the Civil War. People don't know this, but manumission was actually not uncommon. And there were some parts of Virginia, 15 20% were already freed before the Civil War. So the founders thought this was kind of going to go away. It was a little bit naive, mm. but that was their belief. They didn't think it was... They didn't think it was moral. They weren't proud of it. They wouldn't, ever, they wouldn't even say the word. Um, and just technological and historical uh, things intervened, and it took a civil war to figure that out. Right. And what was the three-fifths compromise? Is this, I mean, it sounds ghastly. Is this actually counting a slave as three-fifths of a, uh, of a person for the purposes of, of some calculation? Or what, what's, it, what's it about there, John, please? Yeah, it's no, it's a good, good, yeah, good question. So, so obviously slaves can't vote. So it's very interesting because the Southern slave people. Let me actually, I, if you don't, hope you don't mind. Let me go back really quickly to the Constitution. In the debates, there were some people from some of the Southern states, particularly South Carolina. I think a guy named Pickney, who basically said, "If we are not allowed to have slavery, we are out." So I want to be really clear about that. It was mm. not. And it kind of makes sense when you look at their economy. It makes sense why those people would not support that. And so basically, I hope you don't mind, but let me just quickly go back. I want to just wrestle this one down, which is that um, the South would have, would not, wouldn't have joined the Constitution. Is there, is it very simple? Mm. So if you're from the North, if you're from New York or Pennsylvania or whatever, where they didn't have a lot of slaves, they didn't support slavery, um, the South would have just started their own country. So we would have had the Civil War about 80 years before. So the compromise was required to get all 13 states in. Okay, so let me just... But anyway, that's a nice segue into the three-fifths compromise. You had to have the compromise. Or the states would have just left. I mean, you know, that South Carolina was not going to be in for that. So the three-fifths compromise was basically uh, slaves largely couldn't vote. Um, but the, the South was still like, yeah, but they're people. We feel like they should get some representation. So the compromise was three-fifths. So when we're deciding how to allocate in our country the House of Representatives, which is by population, a slave would count as three-fifths of a person. So if I have 10 slaves, that would count, that would be worth six white voters. And that's how we decide how many representatives a certain state would get. Now, each state also gets two senators 
Um, there's a very, you know, and you can argue this both ways. Like some people say, oh, that's, you know, some people who, uh, they say, hey, well, you're kind of acknowledging they're a person. That's good, right? So some people say there's an abolitionist, anti-slavery part of the three-fifths because you're kind of conceding they're a person. Okay. And then, of course, other people say the opposite of, yeah, but, you know, you're giving slavery more political power and, you know, et cetera. So you can argue it both ways. Yeah. Okay. I was just interested in what that what that was exactly. Yeah. So it gave the slave mm. states more political yeah. representation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. Okay, so, uh, yeah, you, you would argue in favour of rediscovering, though, rediscovering republicanism, the original vision, the values of the founding fathers. How would you apply this today? I mean, look, you've got, I mean... The, the we're in a different economy, aren't we? We've got an industrialized society, more people living in urban areas. Uh, we don't have the same, uh, I mean, there's organized religions just fallen off a cliff. I mean, more so in Australia than in the United States. We've got a massive welfare state. We've got government intervention everywhere. Uh, like, How would you go about it? Or, or what do you, I suppose, what do you see as the the worst areas or where would you apply this vision first? Uh, how do you, how would you see this applied today, John? Yeah, no, great, great, great question. So what I would say is, you know, even at the founding period, the, the federal government, the central, our, our central government had a lot to do. They were completely in charge of military national defense. They were completely in charge of foreign affairs. Uh, they were completely in charge of intellectual property law. They were completely in charge of any legal disputes across state lines. This is the founding, by the way. This isn't recent. Mm. This is like at the beginning. So when we say, and I think there's an important insight, which is the founders didn't say we shouldn't have any central political power. The, the federal government, the constitution, the whole reason it exists is to stand up a federal power. A lot of people in the United States don't understand that. Okay. So it's not about whether it should exist or not. It's about what it should do. And I think that's where we where we got off, at least in our country. And I think a lot of countries uh, across the developed world, and particularly in the Anglophone world, where we all we all actually have pretty similar traditions. We may think we're really different, mm. but you know, compare yourself to China, right? Compare yourself to Russia, and I think we can realize, okay, there's a lot of commonality among the English speaking peoples of the world. Um, I think what we did in the United States is uh, we just really indexed on. On central power, you know, at least it depends on what country you're talking about. But for us, it was really the Great Depression. We had what we called the New Deal uh, in the United States, which just led to this massive profusion of federal power. We had the federal government get into the economy in a really big way. We had the creation of Social Security. Um, we had Works Progress Administration, which employed millions of people to like do various projects across the country. The regulatory state. Uh, social welfare. So the federal government, at least in our country, and I think in, in a lot of, across the world, took on responsibility for helping the the indigent among us, the, the people who are economically 
in challenging circumstances. Wow, right? That's a massive amount. And they're still doing national defense and they're still doing foreign affairs. And I would argue we're not doing it that well. At least mm. I'm just going to say in the United States, I don't, the last 50 years, I don't think is a high, uh, is not a high point of American governance, right? You can look at, you know, the wars we fought in. I'm not sure those were the smartest wars. Um, our, our poverty rate really isn't that great. We have a massive homelessness problem. Our education really hasn't gone better. So, you know, we, we made this change. It sounded good. And then, of course, in my book, I talk about the evidence. And I say, look, I, I think if you look at the evidence, it's hard to say that this was a, a positive experiment, right? We ran an experiment and things really didn't get a ton better in a lot of areas. So in the book, what I'm saying is, let's rediscover some of those insights and apply them. And so we go back to those three things, the individual rights, the federalism or subsidiary of like using more local governments and then civil society. So I'll, I, I quickly tick through through each. If you look at individual rights, I think the most salient example there is, um, is retirement. We've got Social Security. We've got Medicare. In our country, I'm sure you all have similar programs in Australia, if not even more comprehensive. Yeah, programs. more expansive. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys have more expansive. Um, we've had conversations in the United States about you know, setting up individual accounts. You know, We've completely socialized your retirement income and, and healthcare, meaning you pay in some payroll taxes and then the government promises to, to give you some money and to take care of healthcare when you're older, mm. which is one way to do it. I think a more American way to do it would be to give people individual accounts. So when they save money, it goes into an account with their name on it that they get to have some influence and control over with a backstop. So if you run out of money, right? Or if you are too low or you need help topping off your healthcare premiums, the government's there for you. But let's at least give people an opportunity to kind of manage their own affairs. It's a much more American way to do it, right? Mm. I'm not saying it's how every country should do it, but the United States, I mean, people here like to take care of their own stuff. So this having a big social insurance model, which we kind of got stuck on and it's quite the narcotic. We've been on this since the 1930s. It's hard to get off, but in my book, I think we should, I argue we should, and I think there's really good reasons to do that. And I think that would be a huge step towards getting back to a citizen-first approach to life in the, in the United States. Um, states, the federal government of the United States got into education, it got into social welfare, it's gotten into a ton of stuff. It's kind of crazy, the idea that these people could manage all of this stuff simultaneously. It's just, it's completely far, completely far-fetched. So in the book, I basically argue some of these some of these powers should go back to the state governments. We have 50 in the United States. I don't know how many you guys have in Australia, but you know, like homelessness, we're not gonna figure it out in Washington, DC. We're just not. Mm. We may not figure out, we may not figure it out anywhere, but I would prefer we have 50 different states trying things and to see what works. And some states are gonna be more conservative, some states are gonna be more liberal, some states are gonna have more law and order. Some people are going to be more permissive. Fine, run all the experiments. It's just like science. Mm. Run 50 experiments, get results. You can learn from each other, right? The centralized model is very, it's actually not almost non-scientific. It's like, let's just have some smart people come up with an idea and that's how it's going to be. One way. That's not science, mm. right? That's philosopher king. That's like, that's like Plato, you know, going back to, the, to that way of looking at the world. So 
with these types of complex things, I just think we're going to get better results if we let 50 different experiments in. And let's add Australia. Let's add Canada. I mean, we can learn from you guys. You can learn from us. These are global issues. And figure out what works and, and decentralize that. So that's kind of what I say in the book is let's get the federal government out of some of these social issues, these uh, kind of social welfare, um, domestic issues, and let the state governments take the lead. Yeah, yeah. So you, you've got this vision of competitive federalism. And um, look, I, I, yeah. I, yeah, I think there's a, there's a good point there. There's some good points there. Uh, particularly, you see a state like California where uh, you know, it's, I don't know if you'd call it a failed state, but it, it obviously is not the, the power that it once was. Uh, it's, had, it's got some problems and you've got people leaving California and going to places like Florida or, or Texas. So, uh, yeah. And I, I am one of those people. I lived in San Francisco and I moved to Austin seven years ago. Right. So you're yeah. looking at one of those refugees. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And uh, that's why I love federalism, right? Mm. Because, you know, at least, at least on some issues, I get to choose uh, the, the, the regime I live under. You know, and um, I don't mind that California does it that way. And they, if they want a top tax rate of 14% and they want very lax homeless rules and they want all this stuff, there's an argument for that. And there's also an argument for no income tax, which we have in Texas and law and order. Mm. You know, like you can't sleep and set up tents on the sidewalks in this state. We got, we have, we have places for you. We have camps, but it's not downtown. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and, and that's just, uh, that's just how we do it. So, you know, I, I think it's good and, and we can learn from each other. Mm. I'm wondering, John, with your, your idea of having the federal government get out of some of these areas and, uh, I mean, I'm just thinking, I mean, what else needs, have you thought about what else needs to happen? I mean, if I look at it, I think, I mean, you talk about civil society now, you'd have to have a big increase or a big boost in civil society or in, uh, you know, welfare, philanthropy from, from the private sector to be able to fill yeah. that gap because it's, it's going to be huge. Because presumably when Lyndon Johnson introduced the Great Society, I mean, that was one of the periods where you had, like you had FDR, but then you also had Johnson who brought in a lot of the new welfare programs and then, that's right. Like, like presumably he was, con I mean, I think, was he concerned about uh, poor, the poor living in, uh, is it the Appalachians? Uh, the, or there were some, you know, yeah. really remote areas of the States where people were living in really poor conditions. So he's, he's generally concerned yeah. about poverty. Like, I'm just wondering, have you thought about, you know, how would this, how would this work? What else needs to happen? If you, if the federal government suddenly, I mean, what are you talking about? You're talking about cutting the the welfare programs. Yeah. I mean, how did what happens in that circumstance? You know, I so it's a good it's a good question. So, um, on welfare, I actually think just I think sending it to the states. I think there probably is a state role there. Um, states in the United States have been have been involved in in indigent programs since the 1800s. Um, so. State governments have had a role here for a long time. What's new is the federal government getting involved. That's what's mm. relatively new. Um, and it's funny. Now, West Virginia is one of the most conservative states in the country, which you were talking about Lyndon Johnson referring to Appalachia. And they're still quite poor. Mm. Um, and the reason is, if you, if you visit, is that they've seen the impacts of these programs after decades. And you create dependency and you create a lack of work and you, you know, 
federal government has a really hard time, right, monitoring anything. Mm. And so, yeah, it's it, that's a whole thing we could go down. But uh, there are a lot of things that are not helpful for people in the long run that that I think federal programs are really not very good at determining. Like, are you an addict? Like, mm. if you're an addict, you're, there's a very big difference between someone who lost a job at a steel plant or a car plant and someone who is addicted to alcohol or opioids or whatever. And if you're sending both of them the check, right, which is what the federal government basically does, right, that's kind of what they're in the check distribution business in this country. Mm-hmm. That's great for the person who's down on their uh, down on their luck, right? It's really not good for the person you're, you're you're now literally paying someone to stay in the addiction cycle. And th- this is happening to millions of people. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, so it, there's a finesse required. Poverty is so funny because it's conceptually really simple. It's like, oh, here's this person, they, have, they don't have enough money. Um, easy definition. The solution is really complicated and it's heterogeneous. Mm. It completely depends on the person, right? Um, and people who, you know, as part of my book, I cite people who've spent decades working on this issue. And the one thing that's consistent when you li- listen and learn and spend time with people who've worked with poor people is they will tell you how complex it is. So, and that is one thing the federal government is really bad at and laws are really bad at because laws are by definition treating multiple cases the same way. That's what law is about. Now, that's one thing I'm trying to get out of my book is mm. I think there's something in, I think, I hope my book is making a contribution to this conversation because what I'm arguing in the book is there's something inherent, right? It's, it's not that we have bad people or that people are not competent. It's the idea that somehow you're going to pass laws that are going to create these formal bureaucratic programs that are going to successfully tackle complex problems like poverty Mm. is inherently a very questionable assumption. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying poverty, you push down to the states. Mm. They can work with social sector institutions. They can be much more innovative. Um, And there's a lot of evidence to support that. Yeah. Yeah. I think That's, I'm, I, I don't think we need to get government completely out. I don't, yeah. I don't personally support that. Um, but I do think, I think the state governments, I'd love to see them play a much bigger role. I think they're going to be a lot smarter. I think they're going to be a lot more creative. Mm. I think they're going to be, they'll be able to handle uh, diversity of, of cause a, a lot better. Um, you know, and yeah. that's the argument we're having as a country. And I think we might get there. I got to be honest. I'm actually mm. next 50 years. I think it's possible that that uh, some of the things I talk about in this book will, will happen. Okay. Finally, I'd like to ask you about healthcare, John. Uh, so, I mean, one of the things, like, from an Australian perspective, we look at the US and and a lot of a lot of us over here would probably think, oh, we'd actually rather live in Australia with, with the single payer or the socialised medicine or whatever you want to call it uh, than in the US because... I mean, we, it looks like we get better outcomes in terms of life expectancy now. I mean, this is not to necessarily be negative about what's, what's happening in the States, but how do you see the role of government in, in healthcare? You, you had a, the Obamacare. Now, that didn't really uh, replicate what we've got here in Australia or the, the UK, but it moved you away from where you were. And how do you see the role of the federal government in, in healthcare Given that if you look at other countries, it, it looks like you know there there might be public support for that, or that looks like something that may be beneficial. How do you uh, how do you think about healthcare in your framework? 
Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. So yeah, I mean, look, the United States is 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 a bit of an outlier in terms of how we do this with a with a private market um, really playing playing a leading role. Um, what I would say on healthcare that I think might be interesting to your listeners is there's the way that I think about it. And this I think helps kind of understand what's going on in the United States. You, there's the consumption and provision of medical care, and you can socialize or privatize either. So almost imagine a little bit of Punit Square. So I've got the provision, which is like supplying it. I can have private practices and all this stuff, or I can have a, a nationalized, socialized system, which you have in the UK. It sounds like you guys have in Australia. And then the consumption can actually also be privatized or socialized, meaning the amount that's provided to the to the citizen can be controlled, or it can just be like, hey, the government's going to provide it, but you can consume as much as you want. So you can privatize demand. Um, in India. In a lot of developing countries, we have private supply and private consumption, mm. meaning we have a that's true, that's right. The government really doesn't have much involvement there. They do among among old people. And they have some insurance companies, but they actually have a lot of self-pay. So it's it's almost like a it's like an actual market. What you see there is typical market dynamics. It's actually relatively low cost, actually decently high quality. Mm. Then you have you guys, the UK, socialized consumption, socialized provision. The, the doctors are paid by the government and, and there's, there's wait lists, meaning, yeah, Hey, yeah. this is how many surgeries we're going to do. And mm. you just get in line and you wait until your spot opens up. So it's socialized consumption. We have a very weird thing where we socialize, uh, the consumption, but we privatize the provision. So we socialize a lot of people's consumption of it. Yeah. So they're going to buy a lot of it, but then we mm. actually privatize the, the doctors are still for-profit companies. Oh uh, yeah. Well, that's going to get you guess what that's going to get you? That's going to get you really expensive. Yeah. You're going to spend a ton of money because I still have a bottom line mm. as a hospital or a, a physician group, but my consumers don't care. Well, that's where you get the United States where we have 18, 19, $20,000 per capita. And like yeah. you said, accurately, we don't have better life expectancy. We just don't. That's the evidence. So um, I don't get a ton of, I don't get into this a ton in the book, but I think to the extent that we can if we're going to privatize the provision, if we can do something to incentivize, we, we probably, I, I think that's not a stable equilibrium. Mm. I'll be honest with you. I don't think it's stable. You're either going to go socialize or you're going to go privatize. You can't have the middle because in the middle, it gets super, super expensive, which is what we have. Mm. Um, you either have market forces controlling demand like you have in India and China mm. and some other developing countries, which actually has some benefits to it, mm. or you go full social. That actually does make sense. There's an argument for that. So I think we're in a bit of an unstable equilibrium. Um, Switzerland has a model similar to this where they have private insurance companies and then they basically help people pay for their insurance. That's probably where America is going to land, honestly, mm. is, is, is in the Obamacare, in that ACA-like world um, where we basically... Because you take, take Medicare, for example, in the United States, it's, it's our program for old age, 65 and up. Um, the portion of the part of it that's growing the most is Medicare Advantage, which is private insurance companies um, getting people's premiums and supplying them as opposed to Medicare, which is the government program. And Medicare Advantage is almost up to 50%. So what we're finding is American seniors are choosing the for-profit insurance company to supply their care. And it's completely voluntary. Right. Um, yeah. 
So look, healthcare is super complicated. I work at it yeah. uh, from a, in a business perspective. Um, I, I, I wish I could tell you where it's going. I, I can't. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think what we have now is sustainable. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, I mean, I don't have the answers either. I just, yeah, I'm just interested in how in how you do things over there. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. I mean, I mean, there like one point that John Cochran made. Uh, John was at a an event. He came over to Australia for a Reserve Bank conference, and I interviewed him at an event in Sydney recently. And the point that he made was that if you want to, you know, the U.S. still has the best treatment in the world. I mean, you have to be able to, if you've got the insurance and you can get the best cancer treatment, best treatment for anything in the world. So there are some great things about the American system and, and you don't have to wait as you might do if you go, have to go to a public hospital here in Australia. That's one of the issues of the, the, uh, the queuing. Um, so yeah, look, there are some, you know, the, uh, pros and cons with with each system. So uh, yeah, I just thought I'd better clarify that this has been great. No, I, John, I, 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 I love yeah, lo- mm-hmm. I love the question. And I would just say, do you mind if I? I know you're trying to yeah, go ahead. Up. I was just going to say that um, it is really interesting because one way to look at this, and this is an economics perspective, is the U.S. When you look at profit pools, mm. so when you look at where are drug companies and medical device and technology companies making money, the U.S. is I think two thirds of the profit pool, not revenue, profit pool, right? Yeah. Two thirds. So here's one interesting is if we did socialize and the profit pool would go down massively because the government yeah. would buy everything, you would absolutely see a reduction. I, there's no, I, I don't know, but I, I'd love to see this argued the other way, but I'm, I'm pretty confident. Yeah. Um, just based on basic economics that if the profit pool drops that much, you would see a substantial reduction in drug development, Medical device, because what's happening now is the United States market is basically subsidizing R and D. Yeah, which the which the developed world globally, people in Australia are benefiting from. If we socialized and our market shrunk and was more competitive, and we took our cost per capita from eighteen to twelve, which we could absolutely do, right? There'd be a lot less money in all of those things, and so knee replacements, you know, weight loss drugs, diabetes drugs, all the stuff that we all love, with this the pace that it would slow. So there's a huge benefit globally to the way that we're doing it i'm just not sure we're seeing the benefit yeah yeah <laughs> personally i think that's a good point and that's a point that uh russ roberts has made if i recall correctly on econ talk so uh very very good point yeah okay i just might clarify a couple of things john because just so i don't give you the wrong impression of what we do over here in australia so yeah we do have we've got a medicare system which uh covers a lot of you know the whole population, which means you can go to the the doctor and get a lot of that 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 primary care paid for. We've got state hos- state hospital systems or public public hospitals, which will uh, you know provide the you know free uh, healthcare for for people. But we also have a private system. You can get private insurance, and then you can go to a private hospital if you want to. But I mean, there's a heavy reliance on the the uh, the public healthcare system in Australia, and, nice. and Medicare does pay for a lot of uh, basic uh, services, so healthcare, primary healthcare, and also uh, you know eye tests and things like that for uh, for the whole population. So um, yeah, we d- definitely do things differently. The other thing is retirement. Uh, we've got we do have those individual accounts like you're talking about, but we still have the back. We've got a backstop of the pensions, the age pension system. But the the fact is that 
most people can arrange their affairs so that they get either the full pension or part pension, right? You need to accumulate a lot in your individual retirement account not to, to actually get access to the pension. So we we introduced individual retirement accounts, a, a compulsory wow. super, but we haven't actually, <laughs> we, we haven't really try, uh, avoided the the problem that they were trying to uh, to avoid. Uh, so yeah. Uh, yeah, bit of a well, you guys are ahead of us there. You guys are ahead of us there. Yeah. I, it's so funny because I'm like, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I feel like we're really behind. The United States is really behind the ball in a lot of ways. It's like you guys are doing it. Sweden's doing it. The United mm. Kingdom is doing it. I mean, I would argue more left-wing countries in general, right? But when you look at the actual policy, it's like not really, right? I mean, you guys have these. We don't have that. We have 401ks. You have all this other stuff, but yeah, we don't have it in our government system. And the thing is, Gene, too, it's like this stuff is going to take decades yeah. to play out. You know, so it's like, you guys got it set up, but you have to get this really high threshold. You know, very few people are there, you know, but let's, you know, give it 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know what I'm saying? And, 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 uh, I think it'll start to work. Yeah. All right. John Nance, thanks so much for the conversation on your book, Rediscovering Republicanism. I really found that, uh, really enlightening and, uh, I really, I like how you've thought a lot about these issues and the, the, you know, the founding vision and the values and how that could be applied in the modern context. I think that's uh, that's terrific and, uh, yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. So thanks so much, John. Thanks, Gene. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Righto. Thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplored.com or a voicemail via SpeakPipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, if your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a rating. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.